Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 107. Thank y'all so much for listening. Bienvenidos, bitches, and buiti binafi. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. No. Mm -mm, No. Let me tell you. Uh, There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Emmanuel Lovell Webb, a black man who killed four women in Bridgeport, Connecticut between 1990 to 1993. Additionally, he killed a fifth woman in Georgia in 1994. Also, we should let you know that this is the last episode we will be doing for the next month. We're going to take a break, but we'll have some things in our feed for you to listen to, and we'll be back in February. Hell yeah. So sit tight. Uh, Yeah. And uh, by the way, this (laughs) Emmanuel, it's one of my favorite gospel songs, and it goes a little something like this. Emmanuel, Emmanuel. And then the sopranos come in super duper high. Anyway, I just, every time I see this name, Emmanuel, mm, I just, I just really got to sing it. Got to sing it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I did for self-care this year is like listen to gospel at the oh, wow. top of the volume on my headphones and just like, you know, in my head think. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Anyway, how you doing? I'm sorry. How you doing? Before we get into our Emmanuel. 
<laughs> well, I'm stressed out. Oh, well, you know, just pre-Christmas stress, trying to get everything done before I take vacation. Like yeah. I've had, all, I got slammed with a bunch of work. Yeah, um, but you know, it'll soon be over, and I'll be able to relax. So it's all good. Yeah, I got you a gift, and uh, oh. didn't get the chance to drop it off today. So, but it'll be perfect for when you get back home. Right on. Yes. Um, and uh, just stay tuned. And I have something for you, too. So we'll just uh, celebrate after Christmas. That's right. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, won't it be nice to celebrate 2021? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look at Christmas came early in 2021. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you're almost there, Beth. Just hang on. Yeah. And then soon uh, you'll be touching down in one of the Dakotas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> woo, the weather here is frightful. <laughs> it's uh, bracing. What's that mean? That's another word for cold? Well, it, it can be. I've oh, never bracing. heard. Hey, I'm just going to. I'm just going to take your word for it. Like I said, I'm pretty certain you're way smarter than me. I don't think so, but (laughs) fresh and invigorating. Oh, bracing. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, yeah, no, lots to look forward to. My mind is on vacation already, but like my body doesn't feel it yet. You're still stressed in your body. Yeah, stress yeah, and mass. I, I feel that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, I don't usually uh, get time off for the holidays. Normally I'm working. That's It's easier for me to work. It's easier for me to be in that mode working. Um, but since old Whitey is getting his spine worked on, I have to care for him and my kids. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's just me being exhausted, but like right at this moment, like today, everything felt, calm and chill like I don't know if that means that I'm going to be sucked up by a sinkhole tomorrow <laughs> but everything seems well just enjoy it right everything now seems okay right like I'm just trying to like silver lining I I, I I have a lot to be grateful for um including doing this show with you um but yeah I'm just like kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and just <laughs> Uh, reminded myself to just take a little breath. Okay, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I don't, I'm not being hunted by a lion. Not, uh, not today. No, not no today. Need to fight or flight. <laughs> just stay and enjoy. Uh, so, uh, well, uh, now we're gonna get into some listener letters. Hello, angels. Nice. Well, uh, what do we got in that bag, Beth? Well, we got a letter from uh, someone who wants to remain anonymous. So we'll just call her Dr. Viola Davis. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) So she said, I completely understand Wendy's conflicting thoughts on the COVID-19 vaccine. Our country has a really awful history of racism in medicine. I want to recognize one of the leading scientists developing the Moderna vaccine. One of the most effective and exciting vaccines ever developed is a black woman. I've heard that. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of good. That's good news. Yeah, it's exciting. Her yeah. name is Dr. Kizmeki Corbett Kizzy on social media. She studies viruses and immunology, and she leads a really fantastic team of scientists at the NIH in Dr. Fauci's division. Right she also has amazing accounts on Instagram and Twitter where she discusses her work and how non-scientists can understand it. That's really cool. Yes, yes. That's what we need. That's what we boneheads need. (laughs) Make make her make that go viral. If if not already, I mean, seeing it on the timeline. So yeah. So many scientists all over the world are working together and working so hard to make sure that vaccines, treatments, and other discoveries are being made as soon as possible. Dr. Corbett is one of the leaders in the field, and her work is incredibly inspiring and dedicated. Hell yeah. Raven Baxter, almost a doctor, is a really awesome black woman biologist, science communicator, and educator. (laughs) Sorry. She has a great Megan the Stallion style. Megan the Stallion personally retweeted it. Holy 
wrap. It's a wrap about antibodies and the vaccine. And she linked it and we'll go ahead and link it in our show notes. Yes. Yeah. So very cool stuff. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I certainly appreciate um, people understanding why um, BIPOC people are um, hesitant. Like we all know we got to get out of we got to get out, yeah. out of this pandemic and right. it sounds like the only way is to get that vaccine get vaccinated get yep. vaccinated and so uh i i will not be skipping through the tulips towards the vaccine line <laughs> but uh I, i'm gonna I, be shoving everybody out of the way <laughs> you know when my number comes up uh yeah uh, I'll, I'll take it i mean if it if it w- will help um, other people, right? We get vaccinated for other people, for not other people, yeah. For us, yeah. So, um, I feel it. I feel. I feel that, yep. and I um, definitely appreciate this email from Viola Davis. And I would like to give Miss <laughs> Viola Davis loved you in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, by the way, on Netflix. Hello. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for your email. Um, well, we got some new patrons, Tiffany W. and S.C. Powell. And I have some tunes for you. Uh, right so here we go. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, terror takes center stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Tiffany, hot dog and bologna, chicken and macaroni, potting with my homie. <laughs> you heard that? Have you heard that song yet? No. Oh. <laughs> no, I haven't heard it yet. Oh, it's all over TikTok. The kids are loving it. <laughs> There's a cute little dance to it and all the things. Uh-huh. Um, I'm have to watch for that. You should. It's it's uh, It just puts a smile on your face. That is what TikTok does. Yeah, it does. If the pills are not working. Watch some TikTok. <laughs> just watch some TikTok. Uh, so uh, SC Powell, this is for you. Essie Powell, your skin just like pearls, best patron in the world, will never trade you for anybody else singing Essie Powell. La 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 <laughs> Okay, so thank oh, you nice all. One. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you. For supporting our show, and I want to give a shout out to every single person listening who can hear the sound of my voice. This year has been so 
Bad. <laughs> um, and I, 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 there's just unthinkable, horrible things that people are having to endure just by existing in 2020 present day. And uh, um, just, just my heart, our thoughts and prayers to every single person. And um, I don't know what your struggle is. I know there's lots of different struggles out there. I just want to just say shout out and thoughts and prayers to everybody because yeah. it ain't easy. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Emmanuel Lovell Webb, a black serial killer who murdered four women in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and one woman in Georgia in the 1990s. Now, we are going to get into some a stance. <laughs> okay. Emmanuel Lovell Webb, a.k.a. the Bridgeport Killer, a.k.a. the East End Strangler. Uh, Lovell was a serial killer who raped and mutilated his victims. He has four to five known victims. They were all women, and his crimes took place from 1992 to 1994. Lovell was born in Georgia in 1966. His crimes took place in Georgia and Connecticut, USA. Uh, he is now 54 years old, living in prison in Connecticut, and his victims, let's speak their names, rest in power, Queens, Sharon Cunningham was 39, Minnie Sutton was 37, Elizabeth Gandy, 34, Sheila Etheridge, 29, and Evelyn Charity was 37. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Bridgeport, the most populous city in the state of Connecticut, is situated at the mouth of the Peconic River, which empties into Long Island Sound. Much of the land that became Bridgeport was originally occupied by the Peconic Indians of the Pagasset Nation. It was the site of at least five Native American villages. One village consisted of about five or six hundred inhabitants in approximately 150 lodgings. By the way, isn't Connecticut one of your old stomping grounds? Yes. I lived there from the time I was about 13 until I graduated high school. Yep. Get out! Right outside of Bridgeport, about 20 minutes from Bridgeport. Get out! That's crazy! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you I've I've really met anybody from Connecticut other than you. And Connecticut is so far away. It is, and it's kind of a small state. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, isn't uh Captain Hunter, doesn't he live in Connecticut? Yeah, he lives in Connecticut. Oh shit. Now I know two people. Now you know two. Also, <laughs> I kept like writing the word Connecticut for like the doc and like uh -huh. I was like offended that it was telling me I was spelling it wrong. I didn't realize that extra C was in there. I know. I I think about it like Connecticut. Yeah. Come on, man. Uh, so. Just a fuck with you. Yeah. Jesus. Anyway, after the arrival of the first white settlers in 1639, the settlement was named Pequenock after the natives who lived there and who were then shoved off of the land. Nice. Thanks. Uh, settlers, <clears throat> specifically white settlers. Uh, the community then became Fairfield Village. So they moved the people and changed the name for no goddamn reason in 1694, Stratfield in 1701, and then Bridgeport in 1800. When Connecticut achieved statehood in 1788, about 100 settlers lived in Bridgeport. Can you imagine? I mean, wouldn't there, it's Connecticut's a small state, but wouldn't there have been enough room for everybody? <laughs> you would think so, right? Yes. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> Bridgeport's location on the Black Rock Harbor supported shipbuilding and whaling. Around 1760, commercial wharves were built on Bridgeport Harbor on the site of the present downtown. Farmers from inland towns brought their farm products to trade for imported goods, and packet boats, vessels used to carry mail, cargo, and passengers, ran to New York, Boston, and southern ports. During the American Revolution, Bridgeport was a center of privateering. A privateer was a privately owned armed vessel commissioned to attack enemy ships, usually vessels of commerce. Crews were not paid by the commissioning government, but were entitled to cruise cruising for their own profit <laughs> with crew members receiving portions of the value of any cargo or shipping that they could rest from the original owners so basically legal pirates yeah that's where it's at man yeah where, where's tom <laughs> hanks when you need him 
<laughs> Bridgeport eventually shifted from an agrarian economy to mercantile and manufacturing. By 1800, the port was thriving. In 1802, urban expansion resulted in the removal of the Golden Hill Pagusset tribe from the last of their downtown reservation lands. When the railroad opened in 1840, the city became a booming industrial center and produced everything from sewing machines to ammunition. I just got to say about this history, we cover the removal of native indigenous people in almost every single every case. Single, yeah. And what is really devastating to my spirit is how the sources we sort of have to put this together like piecemeal with different sources, but yes, we do. there's the mentioning of the indigenous people and then so much information about what the colonizers and the white people who committed those atrocities by getting rid of those other people had to do in order to um, have their build their cities and things like that and completely disregard. And one of the things that's really um uh, I think shameful about American history is how white guys are always the heroes of it. Yeah. Even though they did some really fucked up really shit shitty to things, human yeah. beings. So just had to point that out. Anyway, uh, in the 1820s, about the time Connecticut abolished slavery, free black people started settling in a neighborhood that later became known as Little Liberia whose oldest surviving buildings date to 1848 and are Connecticut's oldest African-American houses. By the way, speaking of Liberia, I believe Liberia is also a country in Africa that was started by African-Americans. Yeah, Um, we'll get into that in just the next Okay, then I will shut the fuck up. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Didn't get the chance to commit to this episode as I wanted to, so please forgive me. All right, here we go. Okay. First called Ethiop, the community developed as a village of free Black people, Native Americans, and Haitians. In addition to the churches and school, the village had its own commercial businesses, free lending library, and social organizations. The name Little Liberia came from the community's inhabitants identifying with the new African colony of Liberia established for African free Blacks and freed enslaved people in the early 19th century by the American Colonization Society who believed Black people would face better chances of freedom and prosperity in Africa than in the United States. And I was just thinking, the food in this community must have been off the chain. Delicious, yeah. Oh my God, you know why people don't be seasoning their food. (laughs) And so to have all of these communities of color in one place, mm, mouth-watering. Yeah. All right. In 1998, a 104-year-old resident who had arrived in Bridgeport nearly a century earlier when her family moved north from Virginia described her neighborhood. Quote, Little Liberia was a close-knit, safe African-American community where family life was highly respected and the spirit of the community was evident and prevailed, even during hard times. That's what's up. In 1851, East Bridgeport was developed as a planned residential and manufacturing suburb radiating out from a five-acre central square. Elias Howe, an inventor of an early sewing machine, established the Howe Machine Company in Bridgeport in 1865. From 1846 until his death, P.T. Barnum called Bridgeport home. The circus kadood? Yep. Ooh, by the way, he was kind of racist. Yeah. And he was actually the mayor of Bridgeport in 1875. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I like, ooh, I just love history. Mm, Eat it up. (laughs) During the late 1800s, Bridgeport was a leader in the production of rifles, corsets, typewriters, organs, and pianos, and brass goods. At the beginning of the 20th century, automobile and submarine manufacture became important. The greatest population surge came between 1896 and 1910 when the city grew from under 50,000 people to more than 100,000. Wow. Yeah, big jump. Bridgeport's industrial growth attracted and was fueled by immigration from overseas. The influx of immigrants seeking factory jobs grew to include some 60 different ethnic groups. That sounds glorious. Yeah. By 1920, approximately 32% of the population was foreign-born, with another 40% being the children of immigrants. 73% of the labor force was foreign-born. The immigrant neighborhoods were located mostly south of the railroad line near the factory 
factories and to the shore, and included Eastern and Southern European, Scandinavians, and Irish. At this point, African Americans constituted about 1.6% of Bridgeport's population. So not not a lot. Not a lot at all. So you can, you would you I'm just picturing uh like the the one the one black like the one black family or the one the, you're like the yeah. one everywhere you go which yeah. totally sucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh by the 1930s Bridgeport had almost 500 manufacturing firms. On December 22nd, 1939, Father Stephen J. Panic addressed an audience attending the ground Breaking ceremony for Bridgeport's first public housing project, what would later be called Father Pinnock Village. Its first residents were poor laborers who had been living in slums. Progressive at the time, the development included refrigerators, bathrooms inside the apartments, hot and cold running water, gas stoves, a park and community center with a library, including 600 children's books. The project was hailed nationally as a bold sign of social progress designed to abolish poverty and rid the city of crime and disease. So this was a really exciting thing at the time. I'm excited reading it and hearing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Father Panic considered the village to be, quote, perhaps the greatest Christmas gift that ever was given to the people of Bridgeport. Not a promise, but the beginning of a re- of a reality, fine, decent homes for about 5,000 people. At its peak population in 1950, Bridgeport, with some 159,000 citizens, was Connecticut's second most populous city. By the late 20th century, Bridgeport was experiencing deindustrialization and a declining population, although it still overtook Hartford as the state's most populous city by 1980. Hartford's the capital of Connecticut, correct? Uh, I think so. Okay. Don't fact check me. Well, let's just go, keep going. A white okay. flight. Are you, you're looking at a pa. You I can't am. help yourself. Oh, Beth. Oh, boy. It is Hartford, yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, perfectionism will kill you. I can't. I oh, man. Ain't never stopping. <laughs> you have just too much. Oh, man. Uh, like I said, you have to tell yourself this. Dear God, grant me the confidence uh, of a mediocre white man, <laughs> so that you don't Just, and you don't have that perfect. I don't have to Google stuff. You don't have to Google <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's the capital. I know it is. God that's damn true. it. It's true that here. That's what I'm trying to do. That's why I say don't fact check me. I'm just in my mind trying to pretend like I'm a mediocre white man who knows all the things and can speak over anybody. Just believe it because it came out of my mouth. Uh, White flight, as well as overall mismanagement for which several city officials were convicted, contributed to Bridgeport's decline. Um, By 1990, the African-American percentage of the population had increased to 26.6% and residents of Hispanic origin constituted, or Latinx origin, constituted 26.5% of Bridgeport's uh, population. Bridgeport had problems with unemployment, pollution, drugs, and crime in its inner city neighborhoods. From the mid 1960s through the early 1990s, Bridgeport was one of the most dangerous cities in Connecticut. As with many urban New England cities, the city had a high crime and murder rate. It's kind of interesting, the movement of population. Um, All the white people at one point were in the cities, right? Right. And then once people of color started to move in and immigrants, white flight had them dispersed to the suburbs. And now here we are with another wave of uh, gentrification or, or wealthy white people coming in back into the cities, right? And just yeah. pushing people out. It's sort of like where, wherever the it's white really people want to go, they just displace yeah. people. They just who, push everybody out. Yeah, yeah. Since the beginning of Bridgeport time, <laughs> as we said at the top of the episode. Um, let's see. By the early 1980s, Father pa- Panic Village had devolved into a notorious crime-ridden slum. The decay began sometime in the 1970s and accelerated in the following decade with the advent of crack cocaine. Now, I do need to mention, welcome to Culture Corner, there were several um, people who were actually convicted for the decline of um, this area 
And I just think it's important not to put the blame on the inhabitants of this um, village, right? It's right. not, it wasn't their fault. It was poorly managed by people in offices, yes. um, yep. right? Uh, anyway, so uh, there's the advent of crack cocaine. Father Panic Village became a focal point for the city's crack cocaine trade. And due to its proximity to Interstate 95, which made it an easy drive for suburban drug users who were involved in about 70% of the city's drug sales. So what's fueling those drug sales? Suburban drug users. Suburban drug users. Who's who? Who now? White people. What's up, Chad? <laughs> Chad? Uh, Chad and Karen. Chad and Karen want a party this yep, weekend. They're, they're, they're coming up Interstate 95 <laughs> looking for some drugs. Uh, doing drugs. Yeah, but then, you know, who gets who gets um, the punishment for it, right? right. And they're yeah. not necessarily the ones consuming it uh, more than anybody else. So, yeah. The area became the scene of dozens of homicides and other violent crimes. Those who lived there routinely barricaded themselves in their apartments for fear of being hit by stray gunfire. And some even resorted to wearing bulletproof vests. Mm, that is really, really um, sad. Uh, sad, heartbreaking. The origins of the problems associated with the village and other public housing projects around the country can be attributed to what historian Thomas Sugru calls the urban crisis. The urban crisis refers to the decline in manufacturing jobs, infrastructure quality, and tax revenue in industrial cities following the conclusion of World War II. This industrial decline corresponded with the great migration of African Americans from the South to urban centers in the Northeast and Midwest. In addition to moving into northern cities at the onset of the urban crisis, the persistence of job discrimination and racially discriminatory housing practices barred African Americans and Latinx people from accessing the wealth and resources within the rapidly developing suburbs. I wanted to say, speaking of the Great Migration, which we've talked about a ton on our show, one thing we forget is that Black people moved from the South to the North, but so did a lot of white people um, for also for opportunity and um, to help Northerners deal with this influx of black people. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to point that out. A combination of disappearing jobs, suburban housing incentives and racial discrimination led to extreme segregation as white populations moved to the suburbs, while minority, primarily, primarily black populations stayed in the city. Municipal economic struggles and the predominance of people of color among its tenants contributed to public and official disinvestment in the maintenance of public housing. In the post-post-war period, <laughs> crime and drugs, more specifically the crack epidemic of the 1980s, added to the deteriorating conditions. This was the context in which the once regionally renowned village became, as one news article put it, the place where dreams turn to dust. Yeah, and um, crack. Uh, there was a podcast that I listened to. I've always heard in the in um, you know, black people circles and rumors that the government actually um put crack into black neighborhoods and that it had something to do with the Iran Contra. Don't fact check me on all this. Um, it's still a belief that I have. I just haven't done all the research to connect the dots. But anybody out there listening, is it true that the government put crack in black neighborhoods? I need to know uh, so that uh, we could set the record straight. But anyway, uh, as negative conceptions of public housing complexes flourished in the latter half of the 20th century, so too did offensive stereotypes of its occupants as criminal and welfare dependent or the perpetual victims of circumstance. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps, right? Yeah. <laughs> in 1986, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, declared Father Panic Village beyond repair and recommended its destruction as the best solution for inhumane conditions. Mixed reactions followed the news of Father Panic Village's planned demolition. Yeah, these people were just disposable to the officials. Some residents expressed sadness and anger about losing their homes. Others were glad to leave. Despite the division, many people feared displacement and the inability to find affordable housing elsewhere. In 1987, Father Panic Village's tenants filed a class action suit 
suit against HUD and the Bridgeport Housing Authority. The plaintiffs accused the defendants of failing to provide adequate upkeep and maintenance of the facility or safety for its residents, prompting the demolition decision. The lawsuit was settled in 1993 when the Bridgeport Housing Authority and HUD agreed to a one-for-one replacement of 1,063 units at Father Panic Village. Today's Bridgeport is a city of diverse ethnic neighborhoods and significant historic architecture. The city has more than 3,000 structures listed on the National Register of Historic Places, more than any other Connecticut municipality. But in 2003, Connecticut Magazine scored Bridgeport as the lowest of 17 major cities within the state in terms of education, crime, and economic condition, which could be fixed if officials <laughs> decided to do something about it. But yeah. anyway, uh, now we're going to get into Emmanuel's early life. What do you got? <laughs> Emmanuel Lovell Webb was born in Vidalia, Georgia on April 9th, 1966. His family later moved to Mount Vernon, Georgia, where in 1969, his father, Shade Webb, a disabled Navy veteran, died of pneumonia. After graduating from high school, Webb moved to Bridgeport, where he lived with his sister. While there, Webb held jobs with Burdon Security of Fairfield and J&B Construction of Bridgeport. In 1986, he started a relationship with J.D. Henson, and they had two children. The couple and their children lived with Emmanuel's sister, Bernice Sneed, in the East End, in the center of a 10-block radius where all of the killings took place. Acquaintances said that he was handsome, and he knew it. Mm. He had green eyes, he was strong, and women were drawn to him. Green eyes? Did not notice that in any of the photos did you i didn't but that's what somebody said that's what they said <laughs> hey uh there's a very famous rapper they call the green-eyed bandit Ooh, eric sermon and uh yeah his eyes are striking but i did not notice that about emmanuel <laughs> Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing 
that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now we're going to get into the timeline. Now, during the late 1980s and early 1990s, a series of murders occurred in Bridgeport in which the perpetrator raped and strangled women in the east end of the city. Webb was never in trouble with the law, so he never appeared on the radar as the body count reached upwards of 16. On Sunday, April 1st, 1990, at 12.48 p.m., the Bridgeport Fire Department was dispatched to Crescent and Bunnell Streets, three blocks from Webb's home, on a report of a car fire. After the fire was extinguished, firefighters discovered the body of Sharon Cunningham, 39, in the front passenger seat of the vehicle. She was nude from the waist down and disfigured by extensive burns, particularly about the face, and she had a ligature wrapped around her neck. Vaginal smears taken at autopsy revealed multiple intact spermatozoa. The cause of death was determined to be asphyxia due to strangulation. On Saturday, March 28, 1992, at 1.42 p.m., the Bridgeport Police Department was sent to the home of Minnie Sutton, 29, in the city's east end, about eight blocks from Webb's home, on report of a homicide. Minnie's partially clothed body was lying on her right side in her living room. She had sustained stab wounds to the neck, left chest, forehead, and stomach areas. Minnie's three-year-old son was found unharmed inside the home. That sucks. Yeah. Detectives collected evidence from the crime scene, including two partially smoked cigarette butts near the body. An autopsy determined that the cause of death was multiple stab wounds and strangulation. On Monday, April 19, 1993, the body of Elizabeth Maxine Gandy, 33 years old, was discovered in an abandoned pool hall at the corner of Stratford and Fifth Streets, approximately six blocks from Webb's home. Maxine's pants were partially unfastened in front and her bra was pulled up so as to expose her breasts. She had been sexually assaulted. Blood splatter evidence was noted on one of the walls and extended to a height of approximately six feet from the floor. That's one of my favorite um, forensic like aspects. I don't know. Maybe blood, it's the Dexter. Yeah, I just really it dig is it. really interesting. I know. Hire me already. I don't know anything <laughs> about science. But, I just want to figure it out. I'll figure it out. I just want to, <laughs> you know, be involved in the blood splatter. Come on. Uh, it was believed that the suspect might have been injured in the attack. Suspected blood was recovered and retained as potential evidence. Autopsy results concluded that Maxine was killed by strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head. Blood from the crime scene and fingernail scrapings from the victim's body were taken. Three days before she was killed, Gandhi's second grandchild had been born. Gandhi's death left her daughter, Natasha, then 18, to care for her two sisters, 14-year-old Takia and 13-year-old Kashunda, as well as Natasha's own infant son and Takia's three-day-old baby. I was going to see my sister and the baby at the hospital when the phone rang, and I just knew that it was bad, Natasha Gandhi recalled, of the day she heard about her mother's death. The family described Maxine Gandhi as a fighter, a trait that may have helped provide police with a trail to Webb. The day after Maxine's murder, Webb went to the hospital to get treatment for an injury to his hand. Maxine fought for her life, and she injured him. Shout out to you. Yeah. On Monday, June 28, 1993, at 6.41 a.m., the body of Sheila Etheridge, 29, was found in her apartment, about 10 blocks from Webb's home. Sheila had been missing for a few days. Her father and a friend entered her apartment through a window where they found her dead inside her bedroom. Mm. An autopsy concluded that the scene and the circumstances surrounding her death were suspicious. They were sus. Left eye petechial hemorrhage and neck muscle discoloration did suggest asphyxia slash strangulation as a cause of death. But both the final cause of death and manner of death were listed as undetermined due to decomposition. A beer can recovered from the scene contained DNA. Comes through every time, y'all. Yeah. In August 1993, Webb left Connecticut and moved to Georgia to be with his mother. There he found employment as a construction worker. 
On Sunday, July 10th, 1994, about a year after Sheila Etheridge's murder in Connecticut, the body of Evelyn Charity, 37, was found in her home in Vidalia, Georgia, about 100 miles west of Savannah. They call her hard-hearted Hannah, the vamp of Savannah, <laughs> the meanest gal in town. Uh, sorry. Uh, the We're very tired. Uh, the inve- I'm so tired. Sorry. The <laughs> investigation concluded that Evelyn suffered injuries consistent with strangulation and a knife wound to the neck. Richard Malone, then the district attorney for Georgia's Middle Judicial Circuit, said in an interview that he won't forget the crime. In a bedroom of the house, he said the victim's partially clothed body was stretched face down on a bed, her head hanging off at the foot of the bed. She had been strangled with a ligature or a string, he said. Yikes. Uh, But Malone said the case was, quote, problematic, end quote, because the killer, quote, didn't leave a lot behind and the house was extremely neat, end quote. The neat house and even the way in which the victim was found on the bed, quote, led some to believe it was autoerotic asphyxiation, end quote. He added that there was some skepticism among investigators as to the criminality of all of this. Garbage. Um, yeah. I, victim blaming. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty fucked up. Trash. Mm-hmm. Basura. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Thank you. <laughs> a nephew of Evelyn's, Raphael Roundtree, recalled that his aunt was more than a friend of Mr. Webb's, but the family did not suspect him in her death. Nevertheless, Webb was arrested in connection with Evelyn's death, and he then confessed. He claimed that Evelyn died during wild sex oh. and that he staged the scene to resemble a robbery when he realized she had died. Uh, Bullshit. The, yeah, I, I'm having trouble grasping the logic of that explanation. And I wait, survey says I don't see it back in Connecticut in 1994, a special homicide task force was formed to investigate the murders in Bridgeport, but it was disbanded after a short time with few clues uncovered in 1995 in Georgia, Webb pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of involuntary manslaughter in the death of Evelyn Charity, as well as robbery and motor vehicle theft. As a consequence of his conviction, his DNA was taken and entered into the CODIS database. Webb was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but was released on parole in 2001. What? He uh, returned to Bridgeport before moving back to Georgia again. And now we're going to dive into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. The East End killer cases in Bridgeport remained cold until the year 2000, when a cold case unit renewed the investigation of the murders of women in the East End, which occurred during the 1990s. The two members of the cold case unit, Detectives Hator Teixeira or Teixeira, and Robert Sherbach, reinvestigated about 15 murders of young women between the late 1980s and early 1990s and selected 10 that had similar characteristics. Items of physical evidence recovered from four of the crime scenes were submitted to the State Police Forensic Science Lab for DNA testing. At each location, DNA from either Simon. Simon. <laughs> 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 DNA okay. from Simon. Yeah. Who's Simon? I don't know. Maybe. It's, I don't know. <laughs> DNA from either semen, blood, or saliva had been left behind. DNA technology and nationwide profiles had not been available in the early 1990s. Evidence from four of the cases... Uh, the murders of Sharon Cunningham, Minnie Sutton, Maxine Gandy, and Sheila Etheridge contained DNA that matched Webb. Sperm had been located at the murder scenes of Cunningham and Etheridge, a cigarette band, but was found at Sutton's murder scene, and Gandy had skin under her fingernails from scratching her killer. In the meantime, in Georgia, Webb's parole had been revoked in 2005 for illegal drug use and failure to report a residency change when he had moved back to Connecticut after being released and he was sent back to prison. So he almost got away with it. 
Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, detector, detectives Hader Texera and Robert Sherback developed Webb as a suspect in Bridgeport and then re-interviewed the witnesses. Good police work, y'all. As it turned out, the four homicide victims frequented the same bars and after-hours clubs in the East End, as did Webb. Webb knew some of the women, others he met through work, friends, or at bars. One of the commonalities was him, Bridgeport Police Lieutenant James Valladero later said. He happened to know them or had met them or was the last person to have seen them. He just kept popping up. He's like, where's Waldo in a murder? <laughs> there he is. There he is. He's wearing that damn striped shirt again. Uh, <laughs> Uh, man, uh, <laughs> Sarah said, or said a hunch made the investigators check old records at Bridgeport Hospital that showed that the day after Maxine Gandy's murder, Webb had gone to the hospital to be treated for a laceration to his right middle finger. Gotcha. Gotcha, bitch. <laughs> yeah. It took nearly two years to get an arrest warrant for Webb because Bridgeport police had to prove that the DNA under Gandhi's fingernails was left during the homicide. The hospital records plus information police developed showing that Webb was in the area on the day Gandhi was killed helped provide enough evidence to support the warrant. They found out that Webb was incarcerated in Georgia, and the two detectives traveled to the D. Ray James Correctional Facility in Folkston, Georgia, and charged Webb with the murder of Maxine Gandy. His name never came up once in any of these murders until the DNA match, Bridgeport State's Attorney Jonathan Benedict said. All of the victims lived in the East End within a quarter mile of where Webb lived with his sister. Crack cocaine use was common among the victims and Webb. Quote, he liked to party and they liked to party, said Robert Sherback, a detective on the department's cold case unit. But not an excuse to no, uh, no reason to kill somebody or uh, makes does not make you deserving of having no. your life taken. Uh, the Gandy family was in shock to hear that Webb had been arrested. Bridgeport detectives had shown them a picture of Webb more than a year before his arrest and asked if he looked familiar. When the police showed me his picture, I knew he knew my sister somehow, Maxine's sister, Lily Gandy, said. I lived on the same street as him and used to see him all the time, but I never thought he was a serial killer. You never do. Yeah. You never do. Detective Sherback said the four women, all in their late 20s and early 30s, were killed at a time when more than a dozen sex workers had also been murdered in the city. The deaths of the four women were initially grouped together with killings of the sex workers, but interviews with family members and neighbors later revealed that they all had families and jobs um and there's that narrative that police just love to stick to especially police departments that are mostly run by male mostly occupied by males and they just it's like the sex worker thing is easier for them to um stick to and yeah. uh they leave evidence to anything that's not supportive of their sex worker theory aside i think yeah. Oh, I, I got to save it for my takeaways. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> there were still another half a dozen other unsolved murders of women in the same area of Bridgeport during the same period of time. And police said Webb was a possible suspect. However, there was no DNA samples to test in any of those cases. So now we're going to get into the tribal. We're, we're in 2007 and he killed these women in the 90s. Uh, yeah. In 2007, the state also brought charges against Webb in the murders of Sharon Cunningham, Minnie Sutton, and Sheila Etheridge. Webb, who was now 40, was extradited from Georgia to Bridgeport and arraigned in Superior Court on February 15, 2007, for the murders of the four Bridgeport women. In June 2007, the state filed a motion to consolidate the four murder charges for trial. During a hearing, retired FBI Special Agent Greg McCrary, formerly with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, testified that he believed the four murders were committed by the same person. McCrary said he found shared characteristics in the four homicides. All the victims were drug users. They were in the same social group in the city's east side. There were sexual components in each of the crimes. Each victim was disfigured by her killer and Webb's DNA was found at each 
crime scene. McCrary said there were also striking similarities between the murders of the four women and the July 10th, 1994 murder of 37-year-old Evelyn Charity, found strangled and stabbed in her Vidalia, Georgia home. Webb's attorney objected to the motion to consolidate the murder charges and moved that the charges be severed. Uh, in August 2007, the court denied the state's, state's motion without prejudice. In May 2008, the state's renewed its motion to consolidate. The state also asked the court to rule that certain evidence related to Webb's conviction of involuntary manslaughter in Georgia in connection with the death of Evelyn Charity was admissible uncharged misconduct evidence. Webb, of course, opposed these motions. Mm, 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 mm. The court held a hearing related to the motions during which the state and Webb presented evidence concerning the charges and evidence at issue. On May 6, 2008, the court issued a decision in which it consolidated the murder charges related to the deaths of Sharon Cunningham, Minnie Sutton, and Maxine Gandy. The court denied the motion to consolidate as to the charge related to the death of Sheila Etheridge because her cause and manner of death had been listed as undetermined due to her decomposition. But the court ruled that evidence related to the death of Evelyn Charity was admissible in each case. Shortly after, the judge agreed to let the state try Webb for the murders of Sharon Cunningham, Minnie Sutton, and Maxine Gandy together. Webb agreed to plead no contest to three counts of murders for those crimes. The state later dropped its prosecution of Webb for Sheila Etheridge's murder. And on May 22, 2008, the court accepted Webb's pleas and made a finding of guilt as to each of the three murder charges. At a sentencing hearing held on June 23, 2008, the court imposed a 60-year term of incarceration for each of the charges to be served concurrently. Sounds like justice to me. <laughs> so now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Lava Webb is currently an inmate at the MacDougall Walker Correctional Institution located in Suffield, Connecticut. Maxine's daughter, Natasha, said, I have mixed emotions because this doesn't bring my mom back. Maxine Gandy's sister, Lily Golson Gandy, said, quote, he fooled all of us, his mother, his sister, his girlfriend. He would hang around us. He'd be out on the street when everybody was talking, unquote. Mm-mm-mm. So now we're going to get into what we think made him snap and our takeaways. What do you got, Beth? Well, I found this case to be really frustrating because there wasn't a lot of information about Webb, his early life, or the victims. So um, it's impossible to say what made him snap. I also want to know more about the other homicides like did he also kill those other women yeah. was there another serial killer out there on the loose at the same time mm-hmm. were those murders ever solved um and it was kind of stark to me how nobody seemed to care about the sex workers that were killed like we never even got to know their names right i know and that's what i was i was getting at is that um my theory is that the sex worker narrative is easier for law enforcement to follow because it's also easier for them to throw those um individuals away and sleep at night and like not not worry about it yeah if they if they don't you know do the full investigation they don't close the case they don't get somebody arrested um, or in some, somebody in custody. Like, you know, they'll just get to move on to the next case, right? Like right. their lives go on and they just sort of get to leave, leave that, leave that to rest. Even yeah. though that resting, it, it's a, it's a human being who had family and people who cared about them, right? Like a sex worker is a human being. And uh, in the past we've come up against, we so we've gotten some pushback about using the sex worker term. Um, and it just is a, mo- I think a more respectful um, term yeah. uh, than, than the word um, prostitute. But anyway, again, it's just so easy for law enforcement to label men, women, um, non binary folks um, who could be sex workers but might not be right and it's just just too easy Um, I also agree I was really frustrated by this case because I could not find a YouTube video I could not (laughs) find a show I could not find an audiobook I could not find a podcast yeah there was nothing there was nothing and so you know what Wendy did I read so many articles because <laughs> they all said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were only interested in the fact that this guy killed and raped some people. 
He got caught and he got punished. That's and that it. Was it. That's a yep. wrap. Um, yeah. There were so little details about the crimes and the victims. And the, the victims. And their yeah. lives. There was no context. Um, yep. So this was this was a tough one. Um, but I, I think the, my favorite part about this case was learning about the history. And again, reminding people that. So our story took place today in Connecticut. Uh, white settlers came in, moved out the indigenous people, but you also see the movement of white people throughout, even up to this present day, right? Just moving people aside, just shutting down that housing project. I just think it's an interesting um, theme to look at. It Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, you're right. going to get into how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you <laughs> i was worried you were not going to pull it off I, oh. I know you're so tired i was just gonna, i was just gonna hold it if it took me like 45 <laughs> seconds i would have just held it till you came in I got, I got it. You yeah. got it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. All right. So from this episode... How to avoid getting choked or strangled. Uh, My first tip, watch YouTube videos (laughs) on how not to get choked or strangled and uh, self-defense videos. I can't stretch that enough. Um, But I found a couple of lists and I will link those in the show notes. I'm going to read a few things to you, not all of them. Remain calm. Uh, You can't get out of any situation if you are freaking the fuck out, which is totally understandable in this situation. But try to tell yourself to remain calm. Protect your airway. Um, You need to release the grip from around your neck. And if possible, you can do what is called a turtle shell technique, which I've never heard of before, but it's described as this. It's when you tuck your chin down and raise your shoulders up to help support your neck like just making it really huh. hard for your neck to be grabbed right and maybe make a little space in that, that makes airway. sense yeah so I, yeah it looks really funny just think about uh mitch mcconnell there you go make your mitch the bitch face <laughs> and save your save yourself um all right so there's that and then uh stay focused on your objective which is to get the hell out of there jokes can be reapplied so if you like drop your focus you know it might you might lose your opportunity to escape um and then there's ways you know you can look around evaluate your surroundings for for ways that you can apply force by biting the perp or um trying to break break fingers or poke eyes or um soft oh soft- yeah you know we got a really good um post in our group a lady had been attacked in a bathroom and she poked him in the eyes with her nails yeah see yeah what's the um if of any any place soft um can you know help disable somebody is uh, your attacker um and then there's a bunch of others like slamming headbutting them from the back which is a move i've always wanted to try on somebody um <laughs> but haven't had the opportunity yet uh or you know breaking things that are nearby you that kind of thing just um like balls to the wall um go big or go home save your life kind of um action um so we'll we'll link all of those uh did you have anything to add beth no oh oh the last one if all else fails go limp play possum and wait for your chance to get away um i thought that one was an interesting one so good tips thank you so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies any content by or about any marginalized or other groups of individuals um so i wanted to shout out ripper on netflix have you seen it yes 
Did you like it? Yes. I did too. (laughs) I did too. And mixed reviews. Like I shouted out prom a little while ago. And after I talked to all my cutie pock friends, queer, um, trans, POC people, um, they all hated it. And I I loved it. Yeah, I really liked it. But that was just me. It was what I needed. So anyway, Ripper on Netflix, I thought was really great. It's um, where investigators and witnesses recall the Yorkshire uh, Ripper murders, which cast shadow over the North England, uh, the North of England in the late 70s. And just like this story, I personally appreciated how at the end, the doc called out how all these old white males in the police department from the same socioeconomic class basically disregarded all of the evidence that did not fit their narrative of sex worker. Right. Um, and they could have stopped the murderers long before if they had just listened to women. And yeah, followed it's really evidence. frustrating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, And then another podcast I wanted to call out is called Do the Work. While we're on break, you guys can do all these things. Listen to all these things. Do the Work. <laughs> and it's a podcast hosted by um, Brandon Kyle Goodman. And it's about race and our personal relationships. And um, like if something if something you thought was kind of racist or kind of sexist or kind of um transphobic or homophobic happen to you um it's a good reference uh to go to and listen to um the injured person uh confront the person who injured them and they have all these experts help them navigate the conversation oh wow um and it's um it's mostly about race and uh how we can all learn how to be anti-racist in our daily lives um we all have bias so let's talk about it it's really really good and then the last little delicious nugget i'm gonna leave you with dr death released this week in their feed Keith Morrison reading Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh my God, that sounds awesome. It was fantastic. It's only 10 minutes. I'm going to listen to it with my kids, but it was just really, really sweet. I'm going to listen to it with my grandson. Yes. That sounds awesome. It was perfect. Wow. Uh, Anything you want to shout out, Beth? No, I haven't. uh, Everything I've watched has been super white. Oh, that's okay. Sorry, everybody. That's all right. That's why we're a dynamic duo. And anyway, uh, I just want from our, from Fruit Loops fam to yours, uh, stay safe out there. Happy New Year. Um, That's all for today, Beth. But in the meantime, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That is all very, very true. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. And see you next year. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.